Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Congress is in a two-week recess, which means things are just a bit quieter in Washington at the moment. Here at Suspending the Rules, we're going to take advantage of the bye weeks to take a deeper dive into a couple of topics. This week, it's trade, specifically the NAFTA replacement trade agreement that's come to be known as the USMCA. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Lauren Duggan. Ever since President Trump signed the new USMCA last September, there's been debate over whether Congress would or should approve the deal. We have BGov legislative analyst Sarah Babbage in the studio now to help us understand exactly what's happening. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. So catch us up. What is the USMCA and why did the U.S. renegotiate NAFTA? Well, NAFTA came into effect in 1994, and since then, trade between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico has more than tripled. Why was it renegotiated? One thing that's really key to understanding the effects of NAFTA is that it was the first free trade agreement that included both wealthy countries and a lower income country. And people say because of that, uh, too many manufacturing jobs went to Mexico. That's especially an opinion that's held in the Rust Belt. So of course, Donald Trump during his campaign called it the worst deal ever and promised that he was going to rip it up or renegotiate it. And the three countries spent a year uh, redoing it and also modernizing it in addition to trying to shore up some North American manufacturing. And so now we're in the process of getting it approved by the three countries' legislatures. So obviously, uh, President Trump, he, he carried a lot of the states where in the Rust Belt that may have seen job losses as a result of NAFTA. So what changes are in this deal? Well, there's two things that I think are really changed in this deal. There's modernization and there's, as I mentioned, support for manufacturing. NAFTA came into effect in 1994, which was before most of us had computers at home and were logging regularly onto the internet, let alone making most of our purchases there. So um, it adds chapters on e-commerce and digital trade. It also includes provisions that are standard to U.S. free trade agreements these days and things that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which um, the U.S. is no longer part of, but um, had been involved in negotiating. Would those be like copyright and IP related things? Sure, as well as protections for the um, environment and labor, which we can get into a little bit more, but things like um, recognizing conventions on international labor and environment agreements. So most of the action to date, Sarah, has been with the administration negotiating the new deal with Mexico and Canada. But Congress is going to play a pretty big role here coming up. So what are the main points of contention that you see as this deal heads to Congress for a potential vote? So right now, Democrats are really the ones holding the cards. And they, since it needs to pass in the House where they have control, and their probably top focus has been on the labor and environment sections of this agreement. Uh, In NAFTA, these were side agreements, and they've been brought into the main agreement for the USMCA. But Democrats say that there's still not enough enforcement. So if countries don't follow the requirements of the USMCA or individual companies, there's really not enough kind of like a backstop to punish them for that. So those provisions are in the main agreement. There's just not a lot of teeth in them, at least by by the Democrats' argument. Yeah. So one of their focus is on the right to collective bargaining, um, which has to be free of violence or intimidation. And that's something that uh, Democrats are particularly focused on for Mexico. And some Democrats are kind of actively engaging on the details of what's in the agreement right now and proposing changes. So Senators Sherrod Brown and Ron Wyden have proposed 
that if companies violate workers' collective bargaining rights, they could be stripped of the privilege of tariff-free trade between the countries, and that would be like on an individual company level. And they've also proposed letting U.S. and Mexican governments like audit facilities that are suspected of violating labor rights. So that's just one example of where Democrats are proposing specific changes. Another hang-up for Democrats seems to be pharmaceuticals. Right. The agreement requires 10 years of protection for biologic medicines. These are based on living organisms and can tackle diseases like diabetes and cancer. And they take a lot of research to produce, so they're very expensive. And as we know, drug pricing is really a focus, bipartisan focus, in the U.S. right now. And Democrats say that if you enshrine this 10 years of protection into a trade agreement, you're not going to be able to change domestic laws down the road. So let's shift to Republicans and what they're saying about the deal. You could assume that because Republicans are in the same party as President Trump, they agree with his deal, but that doesn't seem to be the case here, does it? There have been a few criticisms that have bubbled up from Republicans. More than 40 Republicans signed on to a letter saying that there's a provision in the deal requiring countries to protect workers against discrimination based on gender or sexual orientation. And they said that that's kind of social policy and it's not the right place to put it in to multilateral trade deal. There's also been some questions raised about the tax and duty-free shipment thresholds. It's called the de minimis thresholds. The U.S. currently allows people like you and me to buy as much as $800 from abroad uh, without having to pay tax and duty. And Canada has said it will double its threshold and Mexico's duty uh, tax-free shipment will remain at $50. So Canada's is increasing to about $30 U.S. dollars. But the provision that some uh, members of Congress are objecting to is that the U.S. can potentially lower its threshold to be proportional to another country. So that would be a really big decrease from $800. Sarah, let's talk a little bit about the process that Congress will use here. This isn't a treaty. It's a trade agreement. So it goes to both the House and the Senate. And there are some other procedures in place here because it was negotiated under fast track procedures, right? Yeah, it's a pretty complicated set of procedures. And the House and Senate have to approve implementing legislation. So this week, the International Trade Commission is going to probably release a report on the economic effects of USMCA. And And just to be clear, that's a U.S. body, right? The ITC? It is, yes. It's an independent U.S. agency. So it's evaluating the potential economic effects. And that's something that lawmakers said that they weren't going to really act on until they know what they're voting on. You know, it's fair. And from then, we'll have the administration has to submit the final agreement and draft statement of administrative action to Congress. And then 30 days after that, they can submit the actual draft of the implementing legislation to Congress. And that starts a clock where Congress will have 90 legislative days to consider the the implementing bill. And there is an up or down vote in both the House and Senate. So there's no option to add amendments. Uh, It has to be the deal that the countries have agreed to. And many of these trade votes in the past have been really close and dramatic votes. So 
presuming we're headed there again with the USMCA, what are some ways that Congress could sink the deal here? Yeah, you're right. So our Bloomberg law colleagues are reporting that there's an approximate vote count out there that they're about 80 votes short in the House. And Nancy Pelosi only wants to bring it to a vote if at least 100 Democrats will vote for it. So if it doesn't have enough support, it's possible that the administration may never send the implementing bill, which is what happened for the Trans-Pacific Partnership with the Obama administration. They just never actually submitted it formally to Congress. It could also, you know, it's an up or down vote. The House could just vote it down. They could also withdraw the trade promotion authority or fast track procedures that you mentioned so that they could amend it because, you know, they can, it's the House, they can change their own rules. So those are just a few of the ways that they could potentially make things challenging if they can't negotiate something with the administration. So if, if the implementing legislation never goes to Congress or gets voted down in the House and they don't go to the an alternative procedure. Does NAFTA stay in place or is NAFTA done? Either way, what, what happens at that point? Well, President Trump has been threatening at times that he could withdraw from NAFTA. And this is kind of a, a two-step process. He would give notification, six-month notification under NAFTA that he's going to withdraw. Just because you give notification doesn't mean you have to leave, but that certainly puts pressure on Congress to, to act on this. So that's a possibility, but members of the administration have said they'd really rather not go that like very forceful route. There's options as well for trying to get side agreements or maybe reopen the deal. Canada and Mexico are saying they really don't want to do that, but maybe there's a way to surgically you know, change just one chapter that everybody can kind of agree that they don't like. For example, the pharmaceuticals or making a change to the labor requirements. So we focused a lot on the U.S. Congress, but this is obviously a three-country deal. So what are some of the other steps that need to happen with our partner countries here? And what's the earliest anything could really take effect given all these different parliamentary procedures that need to play out? Probably the most key thing in terms of the relation to the U.S. is Mexico has to change its labor law for some of those collective bargaining things I was mentioning earlier. Now, last week, the lower house of the Mexican Congress passed the law that is necessary, um, and that's before the U.S. will vote on it. Nancy Pelosi has said that needs to change. So we're still waiting on the um, Senate in Mexico to also pass this law, and they are going to adjourn at the end of April. So they are expected to pass it by then, but then they're also going to have to approve the actual deal, and they're going to be on recess for the summer until the until September. So they're not going to be approving the agreement unless they come back for a special session or something, which our colleagues in Mexico City are saying is unlikely. It's probably going to be um, sometime in the fall that they would approve it. Canada also has not approved the deal yet. They have an election coming up this fall, and their parliament is set to adjourn in June. So they probably aren't going to be acting on it very soon, and there's the potential there'll be a new government coming in that will have to kind of take a fresh new look at the agreement. Another hurdle to get over has to do with tariffs that the Trump administration has has put down and their more threatened tariffs such as against the Mexican automobile sector. What's happening on, on the existing tariff front and, and how could that hinder the deal? Well, not very much is happening on the existing tariff front. They're in place. There's tariffs under Section 232 on steel and aluminum um, as a national security threat, and they apply to Canada and Mexico. And those two countries have retaliatory tariffs on U.S. products as well. So both countries have said those need to be lifted before they will approve the deal. 
and uh, members of Congress are saying that too, especially Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, who is from Iowa and represents a lot of farmers who've been really hurt by the retaliatory tariffs. He's been very forceful in saying that um, those need to come off, and he's hinted that he'll consider legislation to strip the administration of their Section 232 trade authority if, if they don't remove those tariffs. So you mentioned the Canadian elections that are coming up this fall. What about the U.S. elections and their effects? I mean, we had Bernie Sanders, who's an independent from Vermont, who's been against NAFTA for a long time, calling for an even stronger action than what the president's proposing. You have midterm elections where we have some Democrats running in some tough spots trying to hold their seats in, in the 2020 races. So how do you see that affecting this, if at all? It's really tricky. You know, I mentioned that Congress has 90 legislative days to approve the deal, and we still have steps to go before then. They've got a really limited amount of time. And some people have said if they don't actually approve it by the August recess, it's dead in the water. I don't know if that's true, but as it gets closer and closer to the actual 2020 election, it's just going to get harder. It's, it's clearly, as you said, um, Bernie Sanders uh, took a strong line against it, so it's going to get politicized during the Democratic primary. And Nancy Pelosi is not going to want to schedule a vote on something that's going to split her party um, and produce some really ugly fights in an election year. Thank you, Sarah. Bloomberg government subscribers can find all of Sarah's coverage of the USMCA and other trade issues facing lawmakers at bgov.com. That does it for this episode. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.